Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 40th episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend, another co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, when there's a like a good light option to play in a video game or like a bad evil option to play in a video game, which route do you usually go down? Uh, I almost always do the light or the good route first. I try to play how I would like naturally feel good. A lot of the time I'll go back through the game and do the evil route because I'm like, I don't want to say I'm a completionist, but I'm like very interested in what happens in the evil route or the bad route. But I usually do the lighter good route first. That feels better. <laughs> what about you? I am the same. I don't usually go back and do the evil route, though, because like um, I just in my experience, like it's never like interesting evil routes. Like there's no like good motivation to be evil in the games. Usually it's just like. I want to be an asshole and it's like oh, okay like that's not that's not interesting to me it's just like oh I don't really just want to like say and be mean to people just for the sake of being like mean and rude to people that's just not what I want out of my experience if there's like a motivation it's just like I think the one that came closest was like uh in KOTOR I think that was the only game where like I wound up being tempted by the dark side but in every other game it's never appealed to me and especially in Undertale like, I don't know how people do genocide routes. Like, I loved the genocide routes. I couldn't get through it, man. I got to, uh, I got to, oh, uh, Sansa's brother. Papyrus. Papyrus. I uh-huh. killed Papyrus and my real life heartbroke and I stopped. I had no uh-huh. motivation. And it's so sad when you kill a whole area and it's just silent. There's no more happy Undertale music. I can't. I, I couldn't do it. I did not. Yeah, I, I did not finish it. I had some support for that. I definitely would not have been able to solo the the genocide route. I had Casey with me and we had some friends over too and we were going through it because Who beat Sands? It is. Huh? Who beat Sands? I beat Sands. Really? It's impressive. Mm-hmm. It only took like eight hours or something. Hey, I would believe it. That's the other reason why. I was like, wait a second, I have to go through all this sad stuff and then there's like one of the stupidest, most challenging things in video games just waiting for me. Now I- I'm good. I'm, I'm done. It was really like fine in a weird way like the the sheer difficulty of it was just very enjoyable and like getting better at the fight yeah it's fun i don't know hopefully undertale spoilers aren't too big of a deal the game's been out for what 10 years now not that long like I, five years i was like i'm not that old i can't be that old <laughs> <laughs> it's been out for a long time but i don't think 10 years uh yeah, yeah. but yeah so do you want to spend the rest of the episode talking about the philosophical nuances of undertale or do you want to discuss overrated and underrated flesh and blood cards? I don't know. I'm kind of into this Undertale talk. I it's been a while since I like played it, but it was a good time. Yeah, it's on my like list of games to like play through with like Austin at some point in his life. Like it's a hundred percent something he needs to like sit down and play with me at some point. All right, let's go to flesh and blood. <laughs> okay, fair enough. As much as we would enjoy Undertale talk, I don't think our listeners are here for it. Okay. Let's start off. Let's start in the spirit of Undertale, though. Let's start off with underrated cards in a, yeah. in a positivity. So, um, I think we both have six cards for each list. So, do you want to start with that underrated card, or do you want me to go first? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with one. So, this is a card that sees some play, but this card is like ridiculous. Um, doesn't it should see more play than it is, and it's like just like. The on hit is very impactful, and the card is Runic Reclamation. It is a three for seven red that blocks for three, and when it hits, 
an opponent, you get to destroy an aura and create a rune chant. And man, have I lost some games to runic reclamation recently? You cast your channel like frigid, and then they kill it with runic reclamation. And you're just like, well, just lost the game. It's over. Yeah, that's that's actually on my list too because of like how impactful it's been in our testing lately. And like, there's so many weird like setup cards that are starting to come into play more and more in flesh and blood. And as people start turning to auras to kind of play longer games, setup-based heroes, uh, a p- answer like Runic Reclamation is just like super powerful and punishing for those strategies. And like you were saying, like we were playing a bunch of like Viscerai into Icelander, or you were at least, and we were like, oh, this matchup's like super easy. Like it's not even a close game. And then we kept having the experience, like you just said, where we just play your channel like Frigid and be like, ha what are you going to do now, idiot? And they're like, oh, well, here's a runic reclamation and you're like oh i have two blocks in my hand because i'm icelander <laughs> and even if you block even if you have enough cards to block to keep the channel in play then you don't have a blue ice card left to keep the channel around and if you block with coronet peak then you don't have your coronet peak to pitch it a blue ice card to to keep channel around it's just like it never lines up yeah and I was like, oh, well, it's just lucky that nobody played it against Michael ever, you know, because he's had a lot of famous matches against Briars, you know, over the past couple of tournaments. And I looked in everybody's list that played Briar. Nobody's playing Runic Reclamation. Zero people have been playing Prism rotated. So what auras would you need to kill? Especially when Hypothermia <laughs> was around and stuff like that. I don't know. Because like, would you still, like, let's say you made an embodiment of Lightning Token. No, because it doesn't gain go again. I don't know. I don't actually know how that interaction would work. Cause... Yeah, we need Just Scott here. <laughs> yeah. So it was on your list as well? It was. It is It is actually one of the cards on my list. Okay. And Underrated it... card, Runic Reclamation. If you're dying to Icelander, try it out. Yeah. And it especially is going to destroy my other underrated card, Enchanting Melody. Or maybe it doesn't, actually, because Enchanting Melody would just be destroyed from Ward before... The damage actually matters. So Enchanted Melody is a good order to play to counter the Runic Reclamations. So I don't think Enchanted Melody is just a good, a good card to play. You just shouldn't have that in your deck, probably. So hear me out. <laughs> there's there's a there's a theory in Flesh and Blood that I'm working on, the grand unifying theory that sometimes you take low value plays on an individual turn cycle in order to have higher value turn cycles on a later future turn and obviously the inspiration for this uh idea is bolton because so many of bolton's turns are pretty below rate and bad value but if you know that you want to mitigate some on hits or damage and especially if you have good blocking equipment that you can combine with enchanting melody being able to stuff an opponent's like uh, big attack like command and conquer or i guess specifically against guardians i think this card's like pretty good and not having to deal with like their crush effects or their uh pummel effects or things like that because it's going to be very hard for them to get over it and then you just get to come back with your full hand because you didn't use anything to block so it like cheats like the fundamentals of like flesh and blood right because Normally, what it's supposed to be is if, like, you're using cards defensively to stop damage, you then don't have them on offense. And basically, what it's letting you do is prepay for that uh, defense in order to have 
those cards on offense the following turn cycle. And I don't know. I, I It hasn't seen a lot of play yet. I think there's going to be spots and there's going to be decks that are really going to want to be playing like this uh, tempo heavy game and maximize the full value of hand sooner or later. So I think I, I could see a world where this, this card starts popping up for sure. Yeah. So for the most part, this card is worse than like sink below or fate foreseen because you're spending two resources to block for four instead of just zero resources or two resources in a card to block for four instead of zero resources in a card to block for four. But where that like is broken is if you play enchanting melody on one of your turns and then your opponent hits you and you don't have to block now and you get to keep a five card hand and then the sum of those five cards is like or the fifth card is worth like significantly more than the four cards would be with a sink below basically so like with setup decks and combo decks it kind of makes more sense to put enchanting melody in you're like you play the enchanting melody if you know you're gonna have the combo next turn potentially it's like a second cycle kind of thing or something's going on where you know you're going to combo the following turn and you need a five card hand you set up your enchanting melody they do whatever to hit you and then you have your and then you don't have to block with cards in your hand to prevent their on hits or whatever you use that plus some equipment and then you get to play your five card hand that basically needs to recoup that two extra points of value of resources you had to pitch to play the enchanting melody compared to like a sink below or a fate foreseen but if you make up for that two resources because your fifth card adds like let's say six damage or something to your hand then yeah it it makes out it makes sense it checks out and i remember back when you were working on otk viscerai and the starvo prism viscerai metagame you were a big um advocate of this card because when you were playing otk viscerai against starvo you basically didn't have time to get all the way to second cycle before you had to combo you usually had to combo at some point before that because eventually they were just going to dominate a bunch of big attacks in a row and so because you had to combo sooner if you had all these defense reactions in your deck when you sonata'd you would get you would reveal a lot less attacks and non-attacks because you'd be revealing these defense reactions that you didn't have time to get out of your deck by going to second cycle. So Enchanting Melody was kind of a card you used to address that problem. And I think it made a lot of sense in that context. Yeah, that was actually what I was going to talk about next. And OTK Visser, I think, was like the best example of where a card like Enchanting Melody really shined. I didn't do well on that weekend, um, such as life. You know, you can do your best to reveal you know, 10 cards with Sonata, but sometimes you'll still just reveal nine attack actions. And uh, so there's just still a good level of variance to that deck, unfortunately, despite my best attempts to like smooth it out. But overall, in the long run, I felt like that would have been like the way to build that deck. And I think that when, especially in decks that are going to care about things like having non-attack actions, like if you get some kind of benefit for generating an aura or having something with ward, like now that it's going to be a rata with ward, if there's an illusionist that's comes up down the line that cares about having auras with ward on the battle or something like that, and you get like extra benefit for it, and then you get to choose between your replacement effect of whether or not you want like your ward one to pop on like a Kadachi swing versus this ward four or like there's going to be ways that you'll probably want some bigger sources of damage prevention on the field um, for like more setup based decks. And I don't know, it's just a card that I think, like I said, is very underrated, maybe not in like the current design space of flesh and blood, but I think as more and more setup based start coming into existence, it still, it can, it has the potential to really help enable them to get to those points where they're ready to like combo off or do their, uh, powerful thing that makes up for the mopiness of playing enchanting melody. I don't think like decks like, like dash or, you know, Fi should be playing like enchanting melody in like their decks to help soak up damage to prevent on hits and stuff like that. Like that's not what I'm advocating for. Uh, 
I just think, like I said, that it's just something that's you, you trade off the mopey turn cycle that you play it on to have the higher upside on a future turn cycle. That's all. Yeah. In a world where like combofy, if Art of War wasn't drawing two cards, so like you don't want to if it was like a combo fight deck, but the art of war did some other effect that was equally powerful, but was not drawing random cards off the deck. I could see a setup card like this, like a defensive setup card. Cause with combo fi, you need to keep like most of your equipment. You need a, you want a five card hand and it would make sense to have a card like this to help against like Bravo and old time and stuff. And I can even see a world like where this is okay against Dromai because, or in Dromai, because it's a red go again. Um, it, gets to keep staying around as long as you're playing a non-attack action on your turn which you're dromai so you're going to be playing non-attack actions because of your dragons and then so you basically get just get to keep this damage prevention effect on the field and like if your opponent attacks your dragons okay you still have this damage prevention uh, effect floating that's just going to keep carrying over turn cycle after turn cycle after turn cycle then eventually uh it's going to get its value out of it but i guess i don't know maybe not but that's just kind of like maybe my loose idea for where I could sit right now, maybe. Yeah, we, we'll see. We also, what's the current weapon that? Uh, oh, Iris of Reality. Iris of Reality. Maybe. Iris of Reality can't attack with it. So maybe there's some aura build that's like ward heavy, Iris heavy that might want this card at some point. I, I mean, don't think we have You've the inspired tools right me now. now. You've but... inspired me. <laughs> okay. Moving on to my next card. Go for it, buddy. On the subject of illusionists, I think this card is reasonably above rate. Uh, it is Phantasmoclasm. It is a three for nine with Phantasm. But when you attack with it, you get to look at their hand, take one card, put it on the bottom, and they get to draw a new card. So I guess a card that kind of recently has been, I guess the talk of the town since Dynasty is Pulse Wave Harpoon, where like you're kind of able to disrupt people's hands. This has like a similar disruption effect, but it's also just above rate three for nine i i love wounded bullets a three for eight and three for nine's big i can tell you've never actually cast this card before have you <laughs> i have not so what you do is you cast it and your opponent reels their hand you're like oh you have no poppers well it's not a may ability so i guess i'll just take this random card your opponent goes okay they put a card at the bottom and then they draw the popper it's a hundred percent of the time <laughs> that's just it's what happens they draw the popper and then they pop your phantasmoclasm and you're just like oh I guess I'm sad now. And yeah, I don't know. So like the reason why I never saw a lot of play in Prism, right, is because Prism cared about pitching yellows to give Illusionist tax go again, and this card costs three. So you'd have to pitch two cards in order to play it, and then you're three-card nining, which is like... Yeah, three-card nine is not very good. It did see some play in Prism decks. I think... I think there was a prism that topated Vegas with it back in the chain metagame. Um, I don't, I think it kind of fell out of favor when the blue auras got printed because there were just more powerful things to be doing when you had like 27 broken auras and then your reds were very con- contested. I guess you had to be very careful about what reds you put in because they weren't yellows and they weren't blues and they weren't broken auras. <laughs> so you couldn't put too many reds in your deck. Yeah, and then the reason why it doesn't see play in Dromai right now is because obviously there's not a lot of blue. Some decks like play like six blues total in the entire list, and then when you're pitching three cards to play this and you're four card nining, that's Don't a pretty four card nine. That's a pretty bad rate. So 
Yeah, I think the Iris Stromai decks are playing it, which makes sense to me. It's just like big slaps. You have enough blues to afford it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense because they, they want to be playing a lot of blues in order to activate their auras to swing for four. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's fine. I think the drawbacks that are attached to it are very real. Obviously, it has Phantasm. And I think the fact that the draw or the replacement effect on the hand is not optional. Um, because even if they don't draw a popper, right, let's say they don't have a very good hand or like they were incentivized to, to block with their hand. If you take a card and then that, like you just crown a Providence them for free and they're like, Oh, my hand's sick now I'll take my nine and then present like 12 damage back to you. Like that's not a good exchange that you were just forced to make then at that point. Um, so yeah, I, I just think like that forced draw is pretty big downside, I guess. Yeah, it the card would be significantly better if it was optional to not take a card because sometimes you look at their hand, you're like, their hand doesn't function. Sometimes you can fix their hand. I think that doesn't happen the majority of times, but it would be a pretty big power bump to the card if you could choose not to take a card after you see their hand. We're, we're doing some live research right now. What are we researching? We're seeing, uh, we need to read very specific lines on an item so there's the item talisman of ties if opponent would draw one or more cards during your action phase instead destroy they draw that card's minus one so if you play talisman of ties with this card you just actually just thought seize them which is kind of sick okay that sounds not the worst because then you're just trading a card for a card you're trading talisman of ties for a card out of their hand on a key turn cycle mm-hmm. I yeah, don't that, know. that does that does sound like potential is there I'm inspired now. You've you've convinced me now that I've seen Talisman of Tides. The card the card gets there on rate. Like a three for nine that gets to look at their hand and remove any card is very powerful. Even if it's replaced, like you take their best card and replace it with a random card from their deck. Most of the time it's gonna be a pretty good exchange for you. And three for nine is a pretty good exchange. Looks a lot more questionable into decks with high popper counts, but still it's a powerful effect. PT3, Talisman of Ties, Phantasmoclasm, Dromai build. Here we come, baby. I'm ready. You can throw your your two-mana enchantment in there, too. Oh, yeah. And then we're also going to put my next underrated card in there for sure, then, because it's also a blue item, and it's Energy Potion. And you might be like, Roger. <laughs> I almost put that on my overrated list. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Uh, Roger, Energy Potion C is like a good amount of play already. It's in like sideboards against ice decks you're like, yeah, but like, once again, if we go to my theory of carrying over to future value being important going forward, um, so if there's a turn cycle where those two resources can net you like an extra, you know, six or seven damage or enable a combo that like wins you the game, that's like a very good effect then, obviously. And I like it less and less. So I guess in the context of it, like just being a good hedge against like ice heroes, like sure, it's an overrated card, but from like the perspective of just carrying those two future uh, resources into doing something degenerate, I think it's underrated. And as we're seeing a theme here and we'll continue to see a theme across my cards, I'm very interested in setup decks and exploring those options where they get to break the fundamental like game engine of flesh and blood. And I think energy potion is just one of those cards. 
Yeah, if you kind of look at what we've seen set up decks, we've seen Sabres, Boltons always played energy potions or frequently played energy potions. We've seen Kano always plays three energy potions. We've seen Icelander usually plays two or three energy potions. What other setup decks are there? Dorinthia, maybe? I mean, that that exists right now. I'd like, I could see, like, in a world where actually, like, Viscerai probably should have played, like, energy potions just because, like, you could have dumped them into extra Sonata hits and stuff like that. Yeah, spending a whole card in an action point to get. Well, you play, like, a Runeblade non attack action. Good. Or is it when you play a Runeblade card? It's How when did... you play a rune blade card if you played a non-attack action. Uh, you chance. So you okay. have, you'd have to energy potion. You'd energy potion have to have to go again. So I guess I've seen energy potion in like, I feel like every setup deck and every big combo-y deck has played energy potion. So I feel like by that sense, it's hard for me to see it as underrated. And I kind of wanted to put it in overrated because spending a whole action point and a card for two resources is not a good deal. Those two resources have to like, be worth essentially four resources to get your value worth because you spend an action point and a full card on it. So most decks aren't going to do that. And it is a blue, which is nice. It's hard for your blues to get full value a lot of the time, but it also doesn't block, which is a pretty big liability on your on your blues. Sometimes you just draw two blue energy potions and they attack you and you're like, dang, I wish I could have blocked one of these. Yeah, that's fair. Maybe I'm just too high on my energy potion, but... Damn it, man! I like energy potion, but let's let's get off of it then. Tell, tell me about your phenomenal underrated cards that I'm not talking about on my list. And Michael, you 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 show me what's up. So so I got a setup card for you, and I think you don't like the setup card. But I think it's a sick setup card. It's Flock of the Featherwalkers. So this costs at red. It costs one resource. It comes in for five, and uh, you have to reveal some cheap card to play. But you're gonna arsenal that card anyway, so it doesn't matter that much. And you get a quicken token when you play it. So. One for five, cost your action point. That's right at rate before the quicken token. And you don't have to hit to get this quicken token. You just play the flock and boom, you got a quicken token next turn. Set up just like that on rate and setups. Sets up for next turn. Yeah. Great card. I mean, this is not a great card. I great like card. This card. Uh, the reason why is because uh, if you think about what's going to happen on the prior turn cycle, is your opponent's going to do something like attack you a whole bunch and you're going to be like, okay, I'm going to block with one card now because I need three cards to enable this. I need to pitch a card, I need to play the flock, and I need to reveal a card. So if you're not doing anything else, you have just spent a whole turn cycle getting beat up, but you need three cards to do it. And what I like the most out of my setup cards is if they can just be played freely by themselves after you use two or three cards to block or they're just you can use two cards and that's why the zero cost charge cards are so good out of bolton is because you get to if you just want to you can block with two cards i guess good it's a little <laughs> so good it's very strong a little i think they are mediocre at best they fill the role the reason okay i'll rephrase it the reason why the the zero cost charge cards are good in setting up in bolton i'll put a condition on them is because like i said uh you get to block to play your charge card uh charge the other card and it costs zero so you didn't need a third card to pitch for it and that's kind of why take flight can be kind of awkward in the deck sometimes when you're just like trying to set up and do things because you're not really trying to push through much damage and usually you're just kind of like three cards six at that point for the card to pitch card to charge and you're just going to come in with a mobile old saber and your opponent's going to look at your 
what you're doing and be like, yeah, whatever, idiot. I'll take six and 30 you back. Um, so I guess in that sense, like, I think flock is just worse because then also in the situations where you want to block with it, it blocks for two. And and I, I've tried flock of the Featherwalkers in a good amount of decks and I have never been happy with it. So maybe I'm just missing something. Though. I'm not the world champion. So you, you, you can show me at flock. Yeah, you have to find like good ways to use it. Like you have to be able to utilize your other two resources from when you pitch the blue at the start of your turn. So like Kadachi Kadachi into Flock is a pretty good line. Um Cough Ninja's coming up. Cough Flock should probably be at least tested in your So that way when you lead with decks. Surging Strike, it'll have go again. Okay. <laughs> I see. So when you lead with one of your six gust waves, because we're not getting more surging strikes, then you can play your gust wave with fall or with with go again and follow it up with your next thing off your. Yeah, but that new one needs surging strike, gust wave, the bot, the ancestry, and it needs them all to be on the chain in order for it to do its thing. Yeah, but it's also a blue block three. That's a solid card. A blue zero cost block three. That's a solid card when you don't do the thing too. So. I mean, zero, I mean, Ninja's Maybe. not hurting so, for zero cost block threes that have combo effects at the end of like, I mean, already, there's already so, like a bunch of those printed. So it's a zero for two blue combo three block. There's already six like, of those. That exist. I know, I know there's a bunch of them, but this one has significantly higher upside than the other ones, because if you do have the stupid Katsu, all the other things, it also has a significantly higher ask than all the other ones. Plus two. The other ones, well, we're not, not going to talk about that. I'm not going to rain on that cards parade. I'm going to let everybody freak out on Twitter and be like, "Oh my god, they're going to lose hero abilities! I can't believe it." I'm like, "Okay, uh-huh. that's that's it's, it's very much going to happen. Nobody nobody ever does any. Nobody plays pommel or channel like frigid or no. You just it's going to happen." So, okay, flock of the feather walkers at rate before the quicken token. You have to do a lot of work. You have to do a lot of work for belittle too. It was a card that was reasonably above rate that you always disliked, but you do the work the card's gonna be good and we'll, we'll find it I, I believe we will find a deck that flock is very good in at some point and you know a deck that is playing flock of the feather walkers is going to want to reveal to flock of the feather walkers is a zoo confidence because that's next that's a good on, one that's next again. on my underrated list and i've seen some play mostly in like briar but i think it's just an underrated like aggro card in general especially in decks that have like like Everybody thinks like, oh, I, I can just play all these snatches in my deck because I'll just give it a go again with Snapdragon Scalers or, or something like that. Um, or if you're going to run effects like um, Razor Reflex, I think Razor Reflex in combination with Exude Confidence is like very underplayed because obviously if your opponent's not blocking it with a card that has higher power, they're just blocked out from playing defense reactions. and Or even effects like uh, that can pump it at instant speed outside of its ability like lightning press or um i guess lunging press uh if they're only black with four power cards um because then you don't have to go to reactions in order for them to not be able to play defense reactions but i've just seen so many times uh where this card is played and i've, I've also had it played against me and i'm just like oh i'm dead like your opponent plays an exude confidence and you have like um a sink below an arsenal or in your hand or something like that. And you're like, okay, well, I have to block with like my highest, most threatening card in this endgame situation in order to hope that they like can't pump it further. And if they do pump it further, I'm dead. And if they 
or so I could just like completely overblock it. But then like, how do I block a future thing that comes up? So it just puts you in like a lose, 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 lose situation and just a lot of spots. I think uh, it not having go again and it only blocking for two, obviously are pretty big innate downsides to it, but the ceiling on this card is just like insane when you think about it. Yeah, especially if we're like looking at a metagame where fatigue is running rampant with the format. It's like if you set up a big turn where you like pump this up, give it go again, it comes in for seven or 10 or something with go again. They don't have their pulverized or their only card that blocks it. Then it's going to be a lot really hard for them to leverage their resources the way they want to during the turn. So yeah, I don't know. It's a powerful card. Yeah. I'm excited to exude some confidence with Flock of Featherwalkers in this uh, uh, Dromyris build with Phantasmoclasms in it. All right. My next card. <laughs> my next card is Electrify, which, strangely, I think this is the strongest of the cycle, and it's seen the least play of the three. Polar Blast, So Tomorrow, and Electrify. So, do you remember Plunder Run? Go on. Zero, zero for three draw a card. Non-attack action. Electrify is one for three draw a card, but which is reasonably worse than Plunder Run, but you always get the draw a card. You don't always get the three power. It plays really well with attack reactions, and if you care about either lightning cards or non-attack actions, it is good in both of those spots. And a lot of the time, this is one resource for three damage, and the card, and you replace it with it by drawing a new card. So... It's just a very powerful card that has not seen basically any play, I feel like. I'll dial back my incredulity because I guess I was thinking it in more like context of Briar. But as future builds of Flexi keep showing themselves as wanting to go like pretty wide, even in like the icy versions, um, being able to have an effect like this that's going to push extra damage across one of your arrows because it's very rare your opponent's going to be able to just like block out if you're attacking with three arrows in a turn cycle like it's a it's asking a lot of them and i guess even in the situations where they do fully block it out and um they, i guess you don't get your three points of value you're getting like the value in it in tempo because they just we're forced to use a lot of critical resources, probably equipment or something like that, in order to block out all the arrows on the turn cycle. And I know you said red, but like maybe even blue's worth it because there's also a lot of effects in um, Ranger, not all of them, but that just care about the dealing damage to a player, not on hits specifically. So the fact that uh, an electrify can give your next arrow go again, which then you're free to pump and then you fuse it. Um, and then all of your arrows on hit uh, for the rest of the turn will threaten that second frostbite or on like, or on damage effect, I should say, instead of on hit it is a pretty powerful thing. So um, maybe there's like a better way for Lexi's to be utilizing this card that we haven't currently seen. And I guess like in the context that we've only seen like, two lightning heroes so far so maybe it'll be cracked in like a third lightning hero down the line as well yeah oh well, we've seen starvo also and starvo did not want electrify yeah because it's too busy just killing you with everything else i mean like but you know what card starvo did want but didn't play but people just didn't know it at the time 
or I guess, do you have anything else to say about your card? I didn't let you to find a word. Okay, Electrify's good. (laughs) Iowa Pity is really good. And it's going to be like a million, bajillion, billion, million dollars. That was my next card. (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead. Talk about Iowa Pity. Yeah, any any deck that's like looking to like draw cards or like, especially like I'm shocked, like actually shocked that this has not seen play in like Lexi to date yet because casting Iowa or pitching Iowa Fidia to a three of a kind lets you look at five cards potentially. And that's disgusting. Like that's just so many cards. Yeah, I think especially in combination with Death Dealer, where it's a card that you really care about what the next card you draw is. Also with Crown of Seeds, we saw that interaction. Some of the PT1 Starville list did figure out I have Aphidia and played it, and it combined really well when you were pitching it to Crown to find your third Starvo fuse card. But uh, in combination with Death Dealer specifically, I think is where this card really shines because... Death Dealer, you're drawing one card and you need to be able to use it that turn. And a lot of the time you're looking for a very specific red card or like you're looking for a pump or you're looking for a going in attack or you're looking for something kind of specific. And I just sets that up perfectly. And Azalea especially, you can pitch to Death Dealer. You choose which of the two cards you want to draw and then your Azalea ability is ready and you have the other one sitting on top that you Azalea into. It's just... Uh, it does a lot of powerful things when you are manipulating the card a card that you're going to draw on that specific turn. Yeah. And if people are predicting that like Azalea is going to be really good or Rangers are going to have like a Renaissance coming up after outsiders, uh, this is definitely a card. I would recommend people start picking up sooner rather than later. If you're able to, obviously it's not cheap. I think it's like three to $400 somewhere in that middle price. It's not as expensive as heart right now, but I could easily see this being more expensive than heart in the long run because it was like okay in Icelander but like I think it has the potential to be like actually busted eventually in like some kind of combination of a deck that like is drawing a lot of cards looking a lot of cards or cares about the top of their deck in some manner yeah and this is a card that I what similar to heart I really don't like that it's good and it's like probably going to be a tournament staple in some decks because I think like the barrier to entry on these fables is really high and it's just like sh- sh- shelling out 200, 300, $400 for one card. It's kind of gross. I don't like that. And yeah, I don't know. That's all. Yeah. And like heart of find all is like $600 now pushing that. And I think, I don't know if there's less, uh, I have a videos out there. I, I don't think they printed as much Unlimited Arcane Rising as they did Unlimited Welcome to Wraith. I feel like they like super printed a lot of uh, Welcome to Wraith just because it's just like the fundamental flesh and blood set. The Limited was so good for it, whereas Arcane Rising is just like not that. <laughs> and so uh, I, I can't speak to like the specific you know print numbers of how many hearts versus eyes of Aphidias there are are out there, but like my gut would say that I would quickly become more expensive than heart due to supply issues as well, which, you know, LSS could uh, just put a cap on this right now. And just, I think what they could do is just ban it in classic instructed. Like I think in time living legend is going to be a luxury format anyways, uh, similar to like how legacy was for magic, the gathering uh, because like, you know, five, 10 years from now, if you need like a phantasmal footsteps and they haven't printed it since like Monarch, like 
what do you like do you think phantasmal footsteps is just going to be like cheap for forever in like five or six years if living legend picks up on popularity i don't see that being the case so like if they still do if like these fables start being busted and they're busted in a format like living legend that's like a niche highly competitive like luxury format i'm okay with that or they're good in like pve i don't know how to feel about them in blitz um but I feel like the cost of running them in Blitz is a lot higher because your list is so much tighter. So having a card like this that like could be t- potentially pretty clunky is like a lot higher of a risk. But I think the more the, I've I've been chewing on this a lot, I think just banning it in class constructed could help maintain their like collectors like value and like desirability while keeping the barrier to entry to classic constructed more reasonable for everybody. What was the fable in uh dynasty? Uh, it was command and conquer, right? Yeah. And I think they've, they've recognized that like, that, that like, please just never make a mechanically unique fable. Ever. Like if there's a mechanically unique fable in, in outsiders, I'll be, I'll be like pretty sad. Mm-hmm. Cause like something like Bolton's uh, gem from, dynasty could be a fable like it, it kind of feels like arc knight shard where it's a bullet card that is and it's the design of legendary it too. And- i think maybe lss kind of realized like that designing mechanically unique fables is is weird because if you look at it too like soraya is like the legendary in that set so like you have the emperor soraya and then like this bolton card at the end and then the fabled command and conquer i feel like hopefully somewhere in the middle of that design they just lowered the rarity of spirit down to um legendary and then made command and conquer the fable and i really really like design philosophies of like print like like if you can make like a fabled artivore could you imagine it like a full art like right move on the last last ones you've got one left right no you took it with runic reclamation oh was that your six you have an equipment right Oh, Courage of Bladehold. I just I just glossed over it because I just assumed everybody figured that one out by now. But yeah, Courage of Bladehold. Go ahead. My last card is Scavskin Leathers. I think this card is very, very strong. I remember when the new Brute Gloves got printed, or Brute Boots got printed, people were, ta- were talking about replacing Scavskin Leathers with them. But first off, this boots, these boots block for three, which is insane we have had boots, uh, mm-hmm. block for two and then block for one the closest i think is the ranger ones that block for two and then break perch grapplers yeah i'm trying to think of anything else blocks for two at foot that is an iron hide i don't know off the top of my head i guess valiant dynamo well, that one came blocks for sometimes infinite, block. technically but <laughs> so just like having a boot slot that's worth three points of value before you get to anything else and it's also stopping on hits and stuff that's just really really powerful and then the chance of turning mopey turns into turns that can deal like significantly more damage than they would just by rolling them and getting an extra action point like it's not a risk you take that often but sometimes it's going to turn like hands that would deal like six damage with one action point into dealing 11 and that happens when you go second a lot of the time you just roll the scabskins because you have four card hands how are you going to spend it well you need more action points you just roll it on your first turn when you go second or on turns where your opponent maybe blocks a decent amount and then plays a setup item or something then you have a four card hand then you can roll the scab skins to try to get more value out of your hand because otherwise reinhardt doesn't have a ton of access to go again and uh 
I'm blanking. What's the shadow brute's name? Lavia. Lavia. Yeah. Lavia Everybody forgets about her, so don't feel a bad. lot of action, a lot of access to go again. So like taking four card hands that you're not like, you're not like not blocking to get these four card hands, but sometimes your opponent's just going to not threaten you. you. They won't give you an opportunity to block and you'll have a four card hand and having scabs as an option. There is a reasonable amount of upside for your boots that are already blocked for three. Yeah, that's fair. I will say, I guess the only thing that pops in my mind is that just like, I don't like the dice rolling mechanics that's attached to them. I feel like there's potential for some real malfeasance for people who are looking to like cheat in Flesh and Blood eventually. Uh, I'm just really wary of like a loaded die or just like even a semi-loaded die just coming in and like really like breaking them and like a rules game breaking way uh i'm i wish there was like a different way you could design them that didn't require like the like random instrument i don't know how you would do that necessarily um but yeah i i outside of that putting that aside i i do agree like the fact that they block for three and that there's even like you have to give up your arm piece to run the gambler's gloves but the fact that you could even like mitigate the variance on them and if they ever start printing like um different ways like different brute um like head pieces that maybe block as well so gambler's gloves doesn't need to be played and then you get like a real arm slot again or something like that um it definitely has the potential to like also improve a lot in the future as well so obviously the average value of it is like two action points right or 1.5 so uh there's the only thing that's like gonna happen to it though is like it's one of those things where it's just a lot of large numbers where the more your deck is looking to like abuse it the more likely it is that like you will eventually hit that one uh you know one out of six dice rolls you'll hit roll a one on average i think is the math last i checked sounds about right to me (laughs) so uh the more you're you're rolling them obviously the more likely it is you're gonna hit like that one and what I would like to see is that, like, a lightning brute or something like that, or a way to, like, a card in your hand you could have that you could play at instant speed. Because the reason why I said lightning brute is that, like, let's say you roll your scab skins and you have a blink in your hand. Uh, so either you could use this blink as a way to pay for this extra card you want to use uh, for these two action points, or let's say, like, oh, I rolled a zero or I rolled a one. Oops. Well, I'm going to blink myself out of this and then still be able to play this other card and still have a functional turn. So if there's cards like Blink that exist that let you like instant speed recoup an action point or something like that, I think it obviously also greatly improves like the downside of this. Uh, I guess the cautionary person of me just wants a lot of ways to mitigate that downside, even though they are still good. So anyways. Yeah, I think uh, it definitely makes sense. You want ways to mitigate the downside and if these boots didn't have the downside of rolling a one, I think they'd be like beyond broken. Oh yeah, obviously. Yeah. Like if, 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 if when you roll a one, you just still got one action point or something, maybe you take down the upside of six to only giving you two up two action points as well. It's still just, these boots are like super good where there's no downside to rolling them every turn. So there has to be like some risk in rolling them. Otherwise they're just going to be broken for lack of a better word. I think like maybe you still get an action point on a one, but like you take like five damage or something like that that's maybe something better uh, i i just think the penalty of like potentially losing a whole turn cycle and like four cards worth of value if you roll a one is like that's like a game yeah. losing risk you know 
Yeah, it is. And there is one card they printed that I kind of liked the design of, but I think it was way too bad on rate. I can't remember the name of it, but it was a card that said, when you roll dice this turn, you roll two dice and you take the higher value one instead of just rolling one dice, which I'm tr- I can't remember the name of this card. And I remember reading this card and being like, this is a cool idea, but this card is so far below rate, it's never going to see play. Uh, it's a Kayo specialization. Okay. Oh, so maybe it will be good enough because it's a Kayo card. Ready to Kyo. roll. Zero. It's a brute non-attack action uh that costs it's a blue and blocks for three you know the things that brutes really need um and if you would roll one or more die this turn instead roll that many die plus one it ignore the lowest roll so it'll be really good eventually when they start coming out with the roll five die and then (laughs) play yahtzee you know in the yahtzee deck that lss is brewing for the brutes in the upcoming sets you know getting to roll an extra set to make sure you hit yahtzee in your brute deck is going to be like really powerful in kayo so uh, I guess I'm looking forward to that. Anyway, so the design of it lowering variance and die rolling is kind of cool. And I think Skies and Others, very good without any of this low variance stuff. And I think it's kind of silly to talk about playing the other brute boots over Skies and Others when you're giving up two whole points of block for that effect. You know what, Michael? I'm looking at the time, buddy. We're at 47 minutes. It's going to be a long episode. Or we just do it, not do an overrated cards. We could do we could do overrated episode as its own episode. That's a standalone episode. Yeah, we did underrated episodes. We need the content. I mean, yeah, I guess we don't have, wait. We don't have spoilers next. No, it's next next week. We have to so, get through the whole. Yeah, yeah, we have to record one more podcast on the twenty eighth. I can edit all this out. Um, okay, I'm down. Just, we can I, do overrated next week. Okay, Michael. Well. I'm glad we have explored a lot of the more underrated cards. We have some pretty strong disagreements, but some. I, I'm glad we at least agreed on some of the more underrated cards in Flesh and Blood, you know, Runic Reclamation and Eye of Ophidia. Uh, maybe we shouldn't have talked about Eye of Ophidia, but, you know, oh, well, you know, fables are what they are. Yeah, I haven't bought my Eye of Ophidia yet, so don't don't spike the price on me, guys. Don't do that. Oh, I have every fable in the game, except for Corsham, but, I mean, like, who's going to break Corsham? The, uh, the first one I bought was Heart, and after Nationals, I was like, I need to buy this Heart before the price spikes, and, yeah, Hamal Fatel hooked me up, so. And then, nice uh, I, but funnily enough, Corsham was the first fabled we opened. We were just cracking Tales of Aria, practicing <laughs> Sealed, and you, like, freaked out. Like, oh, I opened. I As I called Boyle, I don't want to touch this. And, like, now they're, like, $5. Corsham is just like a doorstopper because it's just like the worst fable. Like, keep making if they keep lowering the power level of fables to Corsham, sure. Yeah, Blood of the Trakide also, uh, right now it's not very good. I think maybe if we get another Draconic set, it'll move up, but for now, there's just not enough Draconic cards, I feel like, to make it good. Not enough Draconic one costs. But still, better be safe than sorry. Just don't make mechanically unique ones anymore. Um, and who knows, maybe next week we'll even talk about overrated cards. We'll get a little spicy here. And uh... I did already hint that uh, Energy Potion almost made my overrated list. So we're probably doing overrated next week, right? Okay, yeah, we're doing overrated. We got, we got, we got to fill this time in between spoilers. We're going to do overrated cards next week. And then we get to dive deep into the first wave of spoilers for Outsiders, baby, including our own spoiler card, which comes out on Saturday, March 4th. It's exciting. I know. Can't wait. I'm very excited to draft this card. <laughs> Limited All-Star. 
our draft or our, our card. That's all. That's the only spoiler for the spoiler that people are going to get. All right. Sounds good. Limited all-star card coming up. Yeah. Do you have uh, any final closing thoughts still, Michael? No, I don't think so. I think I'm ready to wrap it up. Well, the next time you're trying to figure out underrated cards in Flesh and Blood, always remember, mind your manners. Thanks for watching, everybody. <laughs>